chapter 12. If you're able, would you please stand with me, please? No, I do not have a concluding verse tonight to tell you to put a marker there. Hebrews chapter 12, we stand to give reverence and to give honor to the eternal, infallible, inerrant, perfect, preserved word of God is why I ask you to stand. As I read these verses, I hope you're going to see several pictures. The pastor mentioned some of them already. Verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. I don't know if you're getting that or not. It's not going to be a point of the message that I get to spend a lot of time on. But if you are thinking about quitting and thinking about this is too much, I don't like the sand, I don't like this race, I don't like what's going on in my life. He said, before you quit, why don't you think about what Jesus went through? Such contradiction of sinners. He who is altogether holy became sin. That's impossible for you and I to fathom. We can only try to imagine holiness becoming sin. Mercy, he was despising that shame, and yet he did it. Verse number four. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Now look up here. If you've ever had a study in the book of Hebrews, you would or you hope that you, maybe you would remember that these Hebrew people have suffered persecution. They have suffered persecution since they became believers. They left Judaism and turned to Christ. And they have suffered persecution, and yet the writer of Hebrews says, uh, you've not yet resisted unto blood. And yet they've been tortured and persecuted and some of them have shed blood and perhaps even died. And you've not yet resisted unto blood. And in my head I'm thinking, what? But then he explains it. He says, striving against sin. See, there's only one who can shed their blood for sin and it would be effective. None of us can shed our blood and do any good for sin. He said, hey, if you're going through torture, you're going through persecution, you're going through trials, hey, just remember this, you're not paying for your sins. They've already been paid for. Amen. Amen. All right, here we go. Verse 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. 
For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Now stop, stop. I already know I've lost some of you and you, you didn't stay. And maybe, maybe on purpose I did, I don't know. But remember chapter 12 verse 1 is the metaphor of Christianity is that it's a race. He hasn't left the metaphor yet. He's still involved in the race of Christianity. In the race of Christianity, there's going to be discomfort. Somebody say amen. amen. Yeah, we've already gone over that. There will be sand, and there is weights. There's also sin. There's also the devil. Amen? In Christianity, the purpose is, is to become like Christ. The question is not are you going to mess up or are you going to fall. The question is are you going to get back up. We're still in the race. He says, hey, hey, my son, you've forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. Look what he says, verse 5 in the middle. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we've had fathers of our flesh which corrected us. We gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live? For they, verily for a few days... Chasten us after their own pleasure. But he, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Verse 11, now no chastening, for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Let me pray with you, please. Our great God, I come to you again. and God, I do ask again for help tonight to get across the truth. I do ask for power and unction, utterance. I ask for an anointing to preach, to deliver your truth. I pray that every heart, every ear in this room is ready, willing to hear. I pray no one would shut the heart's door, that everyone in the room would say, okay, God, I'll open it. I'll give, you, I'll give you opportunity. I pray you would speak to us. For those that are not saved, I pray you'd capture their heart and they'd, they'd realize their need and they'd, they'd receive Christ. They'd be forgiven tonight. Those of us that know you, I pray you would remind us, encourage us, uplift us, strengthen us. If we need it, convict us, exhort us admonish us, Lord, that we will be willing to be whatever you want us to be. That we would be becoming more and more like you, Jesus. We want to tell you thanks. And it is in the mighty and holy and precious name of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Just uh, to be sure that you get the painting here, the picture, I think it's fascinating, or we, we need to observe anyway, verse 5, And ye have forgotten 
the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. See, you just missed it. He didn't say, and it's possible someday you may forget. He didn't say, and if you're not really paying attention, you could forget. He didn't say that. He didn't say it is likely some of, no, he said, you've forgotten the exhortation. What exhortation did I forget? That God dealeth with you as with sons. When you get born to the again, and you get saved, I've been using the metaphor, the illustration, when you get saved and you're in the race, you get the jersey, you get the number, you're on God's team. You become part of the family. He is the father, we have a big brother, and we're his kids. Amen? That's another metaphor. He said, you've forgotten the exhortation that God is going to deal with you as with children. Mercy. I don't know, maybe you need to hear it again, see those words again. It says, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Mercy. Chastening, it sounds a little different than time out. It does. I don't know if you hear that or not, but in my ear, when I hear like the word chasten, I don't think of, sit down and be still. Time out. No, I don't think of it like that. I know, I know that in our society today, if some yahoo was in here and said, can't believe he's going to be up there preaching about chastening, whipping, beating, spanking children. Can't believe he's going to mention that. Well, my problem is I believe the Holy Bible. I really don't care what Mr. PC says or political correctness. Don't really bother me whatsoever. All it makes me want to do is gag. I told someone yesterday, I wish I had a puke reflex where I could just go, blah! Oh, sorry about that. If I could do it, I'm sure I would throw up on a few people's shoes or leg or something. I know that's not a good Christian thing, but I'm still trying to become like Jesus. <laughs> For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. It's some kind of confrontational discipline. Amen? Now, tonight as I talk about this, I'm going to use this visual to help me and you see when I talk about chastening. I'm going to use this. When God brings his hand down in our life. Watch. That's how I'm going to do it. Watch. When I talk about chastening, discipline, I'm talking about when God brings his hand. Is everybody paying attention? That's what I'm speaking of. Now I have to back up and tell you this. That in the scripture, God never, ever assigns to parents to chasten or discipline their children with the hand. I know it's convenient. And sometimes somebody needs to be smacked in the mouth. 
slapped upside the head. But in the scripture, if you, you can look, you will never find that we're supposed to use our hand. The hand that we hold with, the hand that we love with, is not supposed to be the instrument that we correct with. In the scriptures, it's always an instrument. In the Bible, it's called a rod. That's a bummer. My mom and dad, I'll just tell you right now, my mom did not believe in spanking. She didn't. She's got 11 children. She didn't believe in spanking. She believed in beating. <laughs> spanking was way too easy. She ain't going to waste her time to spank nobody. She'll beat you, baby. That's what she'll do. She would take us to her bedroom and get my dad's 44. No, inch belt. <laughs> Lay us across the bed and begin to do, not the spanking, that other thing. Mercy. If my mom, my mom's a man of God. She's a great woman, I'm telling you. <laughs> she has 11 children. She was married to the same man 64 years. She was a preacher's wife for over 60 years. And I'm telling you, she's a man of God. She's alive today. I'm grateful for the health that she has. And I would have called her today if my phone hadn't got stolen. I know, I'm mad about it too. It's my fault, but it still got stolen. I shouldn't have left it there for a few minutes. But I did, and it's gone. Anyway, I'm, I'm over it mostly by now. I was going to call her on Nancy's phone, and my wife doesn't have my mother's number. She doesn't love my mom. <laughs> I'm lying. I mean, I'm teasing. <laughs> she has her number. Mom was gone to church. She was already gone. I couldn't call her. My mom's a, she's an awesome lady. Let me just tell you how my mom would translate verse 6. Look at verse 6. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Here's how my mom would say it. For whom the Lord loveth, he beateth. Then look what it says next. And scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. I don't know if you're paying attention to vocabulary or not, but chastening and scourging sound a little different. I think scourging has got a little more ump to it. My mom would say it like this. For whom the Lord loveth, he beateth, and he beateth black and blueth. Every son he receiveth. That's how my mom would say it. I, my mom's heard me talk about this and preach this before, talk about her discipline. And she said, David, when you tell people that, they're going to think I was the meanest mom that ever lived. Mom, when I was nine years old, you were the meanest mom that ever lived. <laughs> For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. What would motivate, what would be the catalyst, what would stir God up to say, hey, you're one of my kids? What would cause him to bring his hand down in our life? Why would he chasten us? What's that about? Well, I don't know if you're paying attention or not, but there are at least four reasons that I can tell you tonight that God would bring his hand down in your life. I'm going to mention them to you. The first reason is called retribution. Retribution means there was an offense committed. Because of the offense, there is a result 
consequence for the offense. If you do the deed, is everybody with me? If you do the crime, is everybody with me? And so, and according to the Holy Bible, there are times that when you and I break God's law, when we offend Him, when we say no, when we are disobedient, when we, when we sow, we're going to reap. And whenever we are disobedient to God, that's called retribution in our legal system in America, in our legal system, we have a... a legal system, a court system that's supposed to operate on whatever the offense is that the weight of the penalty is supposed to weigh what the crime does. Lady Justice, she has a blindfold on. She doesn't care who's in front of her. All she does is weigh out the evidence And then whatever the evidence says, if you committed the crime and this is the weight of it, that's going to be... Is everybody with me? Since we're talking about it, that's because I want to get it off my chest. It's a bummer how often Lady Justice does this. Oh, it's a senator again. Well, you need to stop doing that, okay? We know, we know if you have enough money and you have enough clout and you have enough power, you can get away with a lot of stuff. We know that. And we know that if we did the very same crime, throw away the key. We're aware of that. We're not all idiots in the United States, just the people in Washington. I mean, a lot of people are. (laughs) Regardless. If you do the crime, there will be retribution. Now listen, watch. It will never happen this way. If you do disobedience and God brings hand, you will never do this. You will never do this. Uh, what was that for? Why did you do that? Uh-uh. If it's for retribution, when God, when he brings his hand, you will know exactly why. You won't have to say, I don't know what that was all about. You know. Now, you can look your wife in the eye and go, I don't, I don't know. But you know but you don't want them to know that you know. Is anybody hearing me? You can do that to your husband too. You can tell your pastor, I don't have a clue what's going on. But I've been, and I've been personally, had retribution in my life, and I know why God did it. I visited several people that think, so Brother Dave, I can tell you exactly why this is going on. They told me. They're being honest with God and honest with me. It's called retribution. There's another time God brings his hand down in your life. It's called correction. What is correction? Correction doesn't necessarily mean the offense has been done. It just means that you're leaning that way. You're looking over the fence. You're about to. You're getting the bad attitude going. And God goes, get back over here where you belong. They haven't done anything sinful yet. If you've ever been a parent and had children... They haven't done it yet, but they're getting ready to. (laughs) Is everybody with me? Have you ever had the kids, excuse me, have you ever done this? You'd say to the child, don't look at me like that. Look at you like what? (laughs) Like you're looking. How do you think I'm looking at you? I'm just looking at you. 
You know how you're, it's an attitude thing. And it's leading them down the wrong path. And sometimes correction needs to happen to get their back on track. Amen? There's all kinds of things. It's not just attitudes, all kinds of things. That's called correction. There's another one that when God brings hand down your life, it's called protection. He loves us so much that he prevents us from being somewhere that we could have been and we have to go through. I have, uh, you know, we had just two children, all of our children were boys except two. But anyway, <laughs> these girls that lived in our house, we told them, don't get in the street, do not get in the street. If you get in the street, I will beat you. Do not get in the street. If you get in the street, a truck will run over you and kill you. Do not get in the street. Do not get in the street. And of course, one day you look out the window, they're in the street. You go out there and you pick them up and because you don't have the rod with you, bam, 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 you're spanking their legs all the way in the house. Well, what are you doing in the street? I told you to never get in the street. If you get in the street, a truck will run over you and kill you. I told you over and over, don't get in the street. And you just keep beating them until you get in the house and you take them into their bedroom, lay them across the bed, you get the instrument, bam, 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 you keep beating them. If the little three-year-old could, they'd look at you and go, you'll kill me before a truck does. That protection is just as painful sometimes as retribution. Is everybody hearing me? Excuse me. All of us that have been around little children, and there's a hot stove, and they're getting ready to go for it. No, don't touch it. It's hot. It will burn you. Don't touch it. And the little boogers, some of them do this. Oh, yeah, some of them do. If you've had more than two children, you probably have witnessed this. No, don't touch it. Now, I do know some parents have said, well, there are three. They're dumber than a box of rocks. Maybe they'll learn if I let them touch it. Go ahead, dummy. You are dull. I've, I, I've had parents tell me, oh, yeah, I'll let them burn their hand. I couldn't do it. I ran up there and went, bam, bam, what are you doing? I told you no. I'm going to burn you. I have to take you to the hospital to cut your arms and legs off. <laughs> I don't want them to touch it. Everybody with me? Protection. God will protect us. He loves us. There is another time he brings his hand down in our life, and yet it's not altogether defined and described in Hebrews 12, but the application illustration of it is in another chapter. If you just look up here, I'll tell you about it. It's in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. In red letters, Jesus says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. Every branch in me that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. The husbandman is God the Father, and he says, God will purge the vine, the branches, when they produce fruit. Now, if these fruit trees had a voice box, 
and the owner, the farmer, the husbandman comes out there, and after they've had a great crop, had a great production off these, this tree, and then the farmer comes out and starts going, zzz, zzz, zzz. and the tree's going, ouch, hey, what are you doing? You're killing me. And the farmer would say, I didn't know you could talk. I just want you to bear more fruit. But it would be sometimes just as painful as retribution. Is anybody hearing me? There are three responses when God brings his hand down in your life. It's in our verses. In verse number uh, five, it says, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Some people, when God chastens them, you know what they do? They get mad. They're angry with God. I can't believe he did that. I can't believe he let that happen. He's like, they go like this. Ah! They go like this. I can't believe you would do that. How can you be that cruel? How can you be the worst parent in all the universe? And they're angry with God. Most of us that have some maturity to us know people that are mad at God, angry at God, upset with God. It's always fascinating to me that humanoids like us think that we have enough awareness and knowledge to let God know, uh, you know you've messed up big. I won't put up with that kind of stuff. That was not the right. Does everybody hear me? You're mad at God because of what he did? Who in the world's got enough wisdom, omniscience to be able to tell God he's messed up? And yet there are many people who say, well, if God is a God like that, I don't want to have anything to do with Him. Yeah. Like they're smarter than God, brighter than God. It's incredible. Some people are angry with God, they're mad. The second one also is in the same verse. It says, nor faint when thou art rebuked of Him. Some people, uh, perhaps they don't get mad at God, but they faint. Since we're talking about faint, I love this. How many of you, come look up here, how many of you, you witness, not you, you're not the one that did it, but you witness somebody else, you witness them faint and just go down, raise your hand high. That is, isn't that an awesome thing? That is so cool. I love it when they do it. I'm going, Whoa. I know you're supposed to be nervous at first. Oh, are you okay? Okay, that is faint, that's all right. I love it. I think it's the coolest thing. I mean, you're just like, it's over. Boom, they're out of here. I'm not talking about you got a little dizzy and you sit down. I'm talking, boom, you crash. <laughs> I think that is awesome. I love it when people faint. My daughter teaches first grade, and she taught a little boy who's now in the third grade, and his brother's in the fifth grade. They're, they're, those two boys, Mama, works at the same school my daughter works at. And she came and she was telling about the boys got on Dad's computer and got on the Internet and were looking at pictures they shouldn't look at. And Dad and Mom come in there and say, hey, which one of you boys got on the computer? And put, they were these cartoon images, but they still shouldn't be looking at them. Say, hey, what are you boys, which one of you boys did that? And they go, I don't know, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. So they let him leave, and then they called in the fifth grader and said, come here, come here, come here, sit down. Now see, uh, let me tell you, how do you get on the Internet here? How do you do that? You have to enter in 
You have to enter in your, your name. So we know you're the one. And when he realized that he, <laughs> they knew he was the one, he passed out. <laughs> he fainted. Boom! Hit the ground. Like, evidently, he's going, this is bad. <laughs> <laughs> My daughter said, did you still discipline? Yes, after he woke up. We can't let it slide. <laughs> you don't get away with it because you passed out. You know what I've noticed? When someone passes out, you can't go up to them and say, hey, could you give me a glass of tea? Uh, could you go? They can't do anything for you. They're out. That's what the scripture says, nor faint. There are many people, they, don't, they act like they're not mad at God, but they quit. They gave up. I'm out of here. It's over. Don't ask me. I'm not going to respond. I'm not going to be part of it. And they give up. Is everybody hearing me? If you've been in church more than five years, you know people who used to. I've had them look at me in the eye. I am not mad at God. I know better than that. I'm just not going to be part of it anymore. Well, I don't know that that's a bright decision either. Verse 7 says the third response, if ye endure You know what some people do? They're in the sand, they're being disciplined, but they hang in there. They don't give up. Somebody say amen. If you endure, what happens if you endure? He says uh, you will have the P, well, first of all, it says you will have holiness. That's what it says first in verse number 10. You'll be partakers of his holiness. Ladies and gentlemen, when God, look up here, when God brings his hand down in your life, it doesn't matter which reason. If you will endure and hang in there, you will be partakers of His holiness. If you're partaker of His holiness, it sounds to me like you'd be becoming more like Jesus. The very next part says, and you'll have the peaceable fruit of righteousness at the end of verse 11. No, no uh, chastening is, uh, is joyous, it's grievous. But if you hang in there, you will yield, it will yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Wow. On August the 8th, Monday morning, August the 8th, 1988, a long time ago. It's 29 years in just a few months. It was Monday morning. I, was, I took off a week of work. I worked at a factory, and I'd taken off a week of work, and I was going to go preach at a youth camp in Kansas from Oklahoma. And that morning, I'd packed the car and got it all ready, and I'd kiss Nancy goodbye, and I'm talking one of them big, greasy ones, a wet one, a long one. It was good. One of them happy kisses where you go, ooh, I don't want to stop this. Got in the car, and I can see her. I'm telling you in my mind's eye right now, I can see her. She's got the, uh, the screen door open, and she's out like this. I'm in the car, and I'm backing up, and she's going like this. And I'm backing up the car going. It looked like a Hallmark movie, man. It was awesome. <laughs> I'm so glad that that day, that's how I left. Because every time I left, it wasn't like that. 
Uh, there were sometimes she wouldn't come out of the bedroom and not even speaking to me. There were sometimes that she was slamming the door and wouldn't even talk to me when I was leaving. There were sometimes that I got in the car going, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> Yeah, I told her, that's me. But on this day, I didn't. I'm glad. Went to youth camp and preached on Friday morning, somewhere around 10.30 in the morning. Nancy was driving my 1971 Ford pickup truck, just been painted red. It was beautiful. I was going to maybe even restore the interior. Next, it was a four-speed on the floor. Angie was, um, Becky was seated next to Nancy. Angie was next to Becky. Aunt Evelyn was against the window on the other side, four people in the cab of the pickup truck. Aunt Evelyn's around 65, 66 years old. They had just picked peaches. They were going to go about 30 minutes from our house where we lived near Tulsa, go down to Okmulgee, drop Aunt Evelyn off, and Aunt Evelyn's going to can the peaches. Nancy is going to go back home to our house, which is near Tulsa. She's going to clean up the girls and get them all ready. And then they were going to drive down to Moore, which is near Oklahoma City, and go to my parents' house. And on that Friday night, I was going to drive from Kansas and meet them in Moore, Oklahoma. And I was going to preach a youth rally that night at my dad's church. I finished up the camp around noon, got in the car, and I was headed down to Oklahoma City to Moore. I did not know about 10.30 in the morning, Nancy was on a gravel road she'd never been on before. It had a little grade to it, and I'll do it this way. It had a little grade going uphill just a little, and it was so straight and long, it looked like the road went for a mile and a half, just a gravel road going out in the country. The weeds, the grass had grown up on the sides up to my shoulders. Nancy had no idea that there was a paved road that went across there. There were no stop signs on the gravel road. The experts say Nancy was going 18 to 20 miles an hour as she was going south up this little hill. This other truck was going, according to the experts, somewhere between 58 and 68 miles an hour. The other truck was one of those kind of uh, tool trucks. It like has tool beds on the back like a plumber might use or electrician or uh, they have all those tools there. So that truck weighed a lot more than Nancy's truck. When Nancy was going up there, there was no stop signs. So she couldn't see the road until she was on it and uh, the grass was grown up. And this fella, he was going west and those two trucks met at that paved road right there they met and the impact was so violent just slammed into each other like this nancy's going south he's going west and just bam so nancy's truck goes out like this about 120 feet and just kind of rolled out across the road into a ditch to the side of the paved road his truck after they slammed into each other his truck went through a telephone pole through a fence and he went about 150 feet out into a field when the impact, it was so violent, it happened so fast. When it happened, Aunt Evelyn was on the, none of them had seatbelts on. Aunt Evelyn was on this side, and she came across the cab, and her sternum, this bone here, hit the steering wheel. And it hit it so violent that it broke the steering column, just snapped it off right at the dash, just snapped it. It also broke her sternum, she broke her finger, and she got a 
Her, her head, her entire head was bruised. Angie was next to Aunt Evelyn. We don't know what she hit, but Angie broke her collarbone and she got a black eye, and she had a black eye for longer than six months. Becky was next to Angie and next to Mom in between them, and her leg got wrapped up evidently on the gear ship thing, and it pulled all these muscles in her thigh, and she got, I can't remember, it's 28 stitches or some, she got stitches in her head. So violent, it's happened so fast, boom. His truck slammed into Nancy's truck in the back, the quarter panels did, to smash it like that, and then shot it out. You just can't imagine how fast it can happen, how it could happen that quick. But Nancy got out of the truck. And she got in between the two trucks, and her head got pinched between the two trucks, and it shot her out like a slingshot. She hit the pavement, and we know she went down the pavement some. She nearly pulled all the scalp off the back of her head. She had cut her forehead across the front, just as you would imagine Frankenstein, all the way across the front. The reason we know that her head got caught between the two trucks is because the color of paint that they dug out of her brain was the color of the other truck. The... uh, God is so good. Uh, When the accident happened, Angie and Becky were in the truck and they finished sloshing around and they look at Aunt Evelyn and their testimony is that when it happened, Angie had just now, when it happened, Angie had just now turned, uh, it was 1988, she just now turned 11. I'm sorry, yeah, 11. And Becky was 9 and she was getting ready to turn 10. And uh, when they looked at Aunt Evelyn, she turned gray, they said, just ash. And she just went into the floorboard. And it scared the two little girls. They got out of the truck, and they started looking for Mom. The girls say they went around the end of the truck, the back truck. Mama wasn't there. They went to look at the front of the truck, and they looked across the road, and they saw their Mama. She also was 120 feet down the Rode there, and they said, Daddy, the only way you could tell it was Mom is because of the, her clothes she had on, because she was totally covered in blood. You know, if you scratch her head, that it bleeds. Anyway, she just totally covered in blood. God, in His grace, brought a nice lady to come up on the accident right after it happened. The girls had gotten from the back of the truck to the front of the truck. This lady pulled over, and she saw two little girls see their mama across the road, she got out of her van and says, hey, girls, don't, 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 don't cross the road. Please don't cross the road. And this nice lady, by God's grace, brought two little girls back to her van. The man that was driving the truck, he'd been, you know, trained a little bit, like in, when an accident happens or tragedy happens or something, how to do a little bit of help. And he says, his testimony is, he called on the radio, and it was before cell phones, really, so he called on the radio and uh, Got a, you know, an ambulance to come. He said when he got to Nancy, she was swallowing her tongue and uh, about to choke. And I don't know what he used, but he did something to help her not choke until the ambulance came. The ambulance came and they took Aunt Evelyn in a helicopter, her age, and because of her condition at that moment, they took her in the helicopter to Tulsa. They put Nancy in an 
ambulance, Angie in her own ambulance, Becky in her own ambulance, took them to the Okmulgee Hospital. It's just a little town. Some of you are aware of this. Some of you have no idea. But back in those days in the emergency room in some hospitals, it was just a white curtain that divided the rooms, just a little white curtain up there. Angie was in one room, Becky was in another, and Nancy was in another room. And two little girls heard the doctor say, we can't do this. Nancy had crushed the left side of her head about the size of a 50-cent piece or so and then pushed that bone into her brain, and it was, they said, we can't repair this. So they took her to the hospital to Tulsa, which was 30 miles away. Little girls were left there in this little hospital. That morning, we don't know why, don't have any idea, but Angie said, Mama, what are we supposed to do if we need to call somebody? What's the, who should we call? And Nancy gave her two numbers, Jack and Sue Snyder and Connie and Chris Hart. Jack and Sue Snyder had people that were attending the church, and then Connie and Chris were good Christian people that lived across the street from us, and they went... Uh, They were servants in another church. But they lived right across the road from us. Somebody got a hold of Connie uh, and Chris, and they came and picked up Angie and Becky, took them to their house. Their daddy's in Kansas, and their mama's on her way to Tulsa. Well, I don't know what time they picked them up, but their mama's in the hospital at Tulsa. When I got to Oklahoma, to my parents' house, I was told, you need to call the hospital, give them permission to do brain surgery on Nancy. She's been in a horrible accident. I called, and I'm certain they'd already been doing the surgery, and that's good. I don't, didn't need my permission to save her life. But anyway, I called, and Mom and Dad and I got into the car, and us three went from Moore to Tulsa. It's about a two-hour drive, and we went there to see how Nancy was doing. When I got there, there were lots of people in the waiting room, and I'm thankful that they loved us and praying for us. And we'd been in Oklahoma now uh, for 10 years. We'd been to lots of youth rallies, lots of youth camps. I was involved in lots of stuff. But now I was trying to start a church, and I was kind of a little bit disconnected from people just for a couple of years or so. But regardless, uh, the hospital was full of people. So I went down this long hall to ICU by myself, and I was going to find Nancy. And a fellow dressed as a doctor was coming my way, and he said, are you McCracken? I said, yes, I am. And he told me his name. He said, I'm the one that did surgery on your wife. He said, the good news is I cleaned out all the debris and all the dirt out of her brain and all that stuff. He said her skull was crushed. He said, I cut a hole there and smoothed it off, and that muscle on this side of the head will protect her brain. We didn't put a plate there. This will be fine. He said, that's the good part. He said, but I don't know if she's brain dead or not. Her brain stem's either severed or it's bruised. If she lives three days, we will do a test on her to see if she's brain dead or not. I go into the room, Nancy's in a deep coma. She's hooked up to all these cords and her head is bandaged. They've shaved her head. I hadn't seen her since Monday. 
It's Friday evening. I kiss her. I pray with her and for her. And I tell her I need to go check on Angie and Becky. And I left. In the waiting room, I told all the people what the doctor told me, and I said, I have to go home. Some people go, how can you leave? What if she died? That wouldn't matter. I couldn't stop it. There's two little girls that need to see their daddy. I drove the 25 minutes home and got home. There were some people. When I got to my house, I parked in my driveway, walked to Chris and Connie's house, went in their house, told them what the doctor said. Angie could walk. She held my arm. I carried Becky, walked across the yard, so went to their bedroom and set them on the bed. And they're saying, Daddy, is Mama okay? Is she going to be all right? Is Mama going to be okay? What are, they, what are they going to do to Mommy and all this? I told them the best I could that we don't know, but Mama's really bad. And girls, this is what we have to do tonight. We have to put Mama in God's hands. And if God wants Mama, he can have her. And we're going to tell him that it's okay, he can have her. But we're going to say, we want him to leave her here. Please leave her here. Well, Nancy was in a coma for over 50 days. She had pneumonia three times. They put her in a, they came out of ICU and they put her in another room and she's laying there in a deep coma. Every day, evidently, she's getting out of the coma a little bit, but she's not one of those comas where you wake up and you remember anything. There's zero memory, not know anything. But when she did wake up, I went every day at lunch, Angie and Becky, I took them to school 30 miles away, then I would go to work, and then I would, they would let me take an extra time at lunch. I'd go see Nancy at lunch, I'd come back to work, go to school, get the girls, then we'd go see Mama, and then we would go tell her bye, and we'd go eat supper, and we'd go home and get ready for the next day. Nancy was in the coma for 50 days. How, when I say that, when I walked in the room at lunch, one of her eyes were open. I hadn't seen it since August the 8th. And 50 days had passed. And when she looked ahead, I'd say, hey, 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 looky here, Nancy, I can see you. And she stared like a zombie for, when her both eyes opened, she just stared like a zombie for a week. She didn't know what was going on. She was still comatose, but I say she was in a coma about 50 days. Nancy can... They call it lighter. She continued to get lighter. Her left side froze. Her left hand froze like this and a fist like this. Her left leg froze, pointed toes, pointed down. Her right side flopped around all over the place. She was pulling blankets and pushing blankets and pulling stuff, but she didn't know what she was doing. We could put her in a wheelchair, and she was bent like this, and We'd push her around, but she stared like a zombie. She didn't have a clue what was going on. We left that hospital and went to a rehab, and she was at a rehab where they were going to help her, hopefully, to be able to walk some. They're going to try to release this where this had mobility, try to help her with this leg where it had atrophied and so on. And then they want to try to help her with cognition and speech. And anyway, when they took the trach out, Nancy began to talk. She talked like this. David. And she knew my, well, when she woke up, when we were at the rehab, she doesn't know she's married. 
She doesn't know her dad's dead. She doesn't know she has two children. She doesn't know how old she is. She'd been awake for a few days and, you know, I don't know, a week or longer. And I would say, Nancy, are you married? She would wrinkle up her face and think about it. No. I said, Nancy, would you marry me? She'd wrinkle up her face. No. <laughs> Too bad. You're already married to me. You can't get away. You're married. I teased her and played around with her just like I would if she was well. The nurses said, Nancy, if you ever want us to do something to him, we can do it. We, <laughs> we have the equipment to do this to him. I asked her how old she was, and she goes, I don't know. Well, when the accident happened, she was uh, 31 years old. I said, Nancy, you're 42 years old. <laughs> I didn't know I was that old. You know, it's talking with that gravelly voice. I said, yeah, you're 42, I'm 43, 44, so, but that's okay, you'll be all right. Every night before I would leave, I would put my hand, my right hand on her head, and I was rubbing her short hair. And I'd lean over and I'd kiss her, and then I'd pray with her. And kiss her until I don't tell her I don't want to go. She, please don't leave, please don't leave. I go, I have to go, honey. The kids have to go to school. One night in particular, I'd prayed. I remember distinctly she had her good hand, her right hand. She grabbed me by the shirt and pulled me down to her face. And she said, David, I thank the Lord for you. And I rejoiced that she knew that I was praying and talking to God, and that she knew that I loved her and I didn't want to give up on her. She was getting better, and we were trying to teach her to walk, and she developed tremors. She shook like this. Her whole body shook. When we put her in a wheelchair, we had to tie her in the wheelchair. She would bounce out of it. So they couldn't work on her walking anymore and so on. And so when I, I can get her out of the wheelchair and I'd hold her by the forearms, I would walk backwards and she would walk like this. And she would shake. We even went home the last day of December and she walked up the two steps into our house and walked into the living room and I set her in the recliner. Nancy was in a wheelchair for a year. The brain damage, Nancy was like a toddler. She was like... Uh, it's a third or fourth grader. She, her maturity was all scrambled up, and she knew she was mama. She knew she was supposed to be the mama, but she wasn't able to do anything. She shook so violently. She was in a wheelchair a year. She couldn't clothe herself. She couldn't bathe herself. She couldn't feed herself. There was a lot of stuff that happened during that time. God changed my life when the wheelchair came. Regardless, hallelujah, you can tell she got a lot better. It's a hallelujah. In 1992, Nancy was in another car wreck. I was driving. Her face went up into the windshield. It cut her left eyelid off. It cut both eyelids, right across both eyelids. And when it all settled down... She said, Dave, Dave, my, she said, I cut my eyes, I can't see. I said, I looked over at her, 
Her left eyelashes were hanging down here with a little thread just hanging there. I said, don't touch it, Nancy, please. I made a little pad out of a shirt and said, just hold it against your forehead until the ambulance comes. Nancy's left eye ruptured and they couldn't fix it in Stillwater, Oklahoma. We went down to Dean McGee Eye Clinic in Oklahoma City. Praise the Lord, they did the surgery. She kept her left eye. She, uh, they did the best they could with plastic surgery. She has, she can see light out of her left eye right now. She cannot see the big E. If you move your hand up here, she can go, yeah, you're moving. If you move your hand down here, she doesn't know you're moving. She just, she knows some action, activity is going on. She has no vision in her left eye. In 1993, in December, I came home from work, and she said, Dave, I have a lump that I've never had before. Went to the doctor, and the doctor said he aspirated it, so we need to do the surgery. In January of 1994, we found that Nancy has breast cancer and had a mastectomy. She took chemotherapy for six months. Now, why I'm telling you this, I'm not telling you this to, for a man you to compare how sad things are and how bad events, because everybody has them. But I'm telling you this, that there's a reason God does this. Well, why did he do it? Was it retribution, Brother Dave? Was it you? Was it you? I can tell you for certain it wasn't retribution. There was not some particular sin I'd committed that I know about. And as far as Nancy, you know, she's got brain damage. She don't know if she did anything or not. So it wasn't retribution. You say, was it correction? Well, I will tell you that I need correction all the time. And it did correct me in my behavior toward my wife. When a wheelchair came in my life, I stopped asking her for everything. I started asking her, what can I get you? Can I get this for you? You want some tea? Can I help you do this? There's all kinds of things that I do that I never would have done before. I'm not a, I don't do dishes. I don't do the clothes. I don't iron. I'm not doing that stuff. I don't make the bed. I got married. <laughs> and God changed my life totally. Totally. Two little girls. Let me say this to you young people. Don't wait for your mama to get in a wheelchair before you help her. A 9 and 10 and a 10 and 11, 11 and 12, and a 13 and 14, and a 14 and 15 year old girls as they grew up they learned that they can do stuff for mama too. God changed us. So correction was part of it. I know it was protection. See, on Friday night I was supposed to preach a youth rally, and then Saturday we were all supposed to go to Texas, and I was going to candidate at a church in Austin, Texas, to see if they wanted me to be their pastor. And God protected that church. <laughs> we didn't go. But I will tell you, I know this, it was so we could bear more fruit. I had no idea that anybody ever want to hear me preach. No idea. No idea. After Nancy's wreck and she's in the wheelchair, I'm pushing her around and trying to help her. Friends said, hey Dave, come and preach for me. I know why they asked me. They loved Nancy and they wanted to help us financially. Oh, this stuff. 
I know they didn't ask me to come because, hey, he's a great preacher, won't you come? I know, I'm not oblivious to that. But as time went along, God kept opening these doors. And God made it known to me that I do want you to be an evangelist. I thought we would starve to death. I thought I'd be calling churches, hey, Brother Farinella, I'm evangelist. No, Dave Crack, I'm evangelist. You want me to preach? Huh? Never mind. I thought we would starve. God's been so good to us. I've preached around the world twice. I've preached in all but four or five states in the United States. Hundreds, hundreds have received Christ to be their Savior. Scores have surrendered their life to full-time ministry. Thousands have been on their knees to rededicate their life and say, okay, God, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to stay in the race. I'm not going to give up. And it's not because I'm awesome. It's because God is awesome. And he wanted us to bear more fruit. I'm almost done. i got to tell you this. This woman here is the best Christian lady I know. So does she have any faults? Uh, yeah. But I'm telling you, the best Christian lady I know in this regard. She has never one time complained about having tremors. She eats left-handed because her right hand shakes more than her left hand. She used to play the piano. If the piece was written, give her a few days to practice, she could play any piece. She can't play the piano. Her brain knows what to do, but her fingers and hands won't cooperate. She's never complained that she's tripped dozens of times and fallen headlong because she has tremors and she doesn't have balance. She's never complained one time that one eye is totally different than the other eye. It's not symmetrical anymore at all. When she puts on makeup, she puts on makeup with her elbows tucked in and her hand like this, and she's shaking, and she's putting on eyeliner, mascara. I did put it on. I put makeup on her one time. She was still in the wheelchair. I took her to church, and the ladies go, Brother Dave, did you put her makeup on? Uh, yeah. Never do it again. She looks happy. I said, she's not a clown, Brother Dave. Don't do that again. Never do that again. And I never have. Nancy's never complained about her eye and how it looks. And some of you complain that you have one cheekbone a little higher than the other, or this lip didn't look like you wanted to look. If I could just get this ear put down, I'd just switch my chin. It was different. It was different. Cry, baby. She's never complained about what her eye looks like. She's never complained about having cancer, having body parts cut off. She's never said, I don't know why this happened to me. She's never, and I'm telling you, she has two girls. Angie will be 40 in uh, July, and you can ask Angie. And she, Angie's known her since the wreck, since Angie was 11. And Angie will tell you, I've never heard her complain one time about tremors, about how her eye looks, about that she had cancer. She's never complained about it. And some of you crybabies can't, you know, if you bruise your leg, you get all bent out of shape, or, you know, you got the sinus problem again. 
I'm just telling you, she's the best Christian lady, lady I know when it comes to saying, I trust him. If Nancy were to give the testimony tonight, I already know what she'd say because I've told people this story many times. She would get in front of you tonight. She said, well, I'll tell you the same thing I told my little girls when they were little. It was a song that we learned together. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. She trusts him. And you that have known Nancy, some of you have known her for years now, she has a pleasant, sweet spirit. She's not vindictive, she's not mean, she's not hateful except to me. (laughs) And I think that's part of the brain damage. She's crazy. (laughs) She's a crazy woman. She doesn't know what she's doing. I tell you, I am a fortunate, thankful preacher man. God knows if he would have taken her that I'd been a wreck and I wouldn't be in the ministry today. I know there's been tragedy in this room, but God knows what he's doing, doesn't he? I know, I don't know what I would do. I hope I have the grace to hang in there. But God knows that he said, McCracken, I want you to produce more fruit, and I'm going to do something for you that you could have never dreamed of. Nancy has the peaceable fruit of righteousness. See, some of you murmur and complain, your belly ache. You need to get the peaceable fruit of righteousness. How do you get it? You accept what God's doing and you're exercised thereby. Amen. You endure. You don't complain. You don't get mad. You don't quit. You just say, okay, God, I trust you. I don't know what you've been through. I know this. You can trust God. I don't know what you're going to go through, but you are. If Christ doesn't come back and you live another five, ten years, you're going to go through some gross stuff that you don't like. And some of it will be because of you. It's called retribution. Some of it will be correction. There's no doubt he loves us. But are you going to respond properly? Some of it is going to be protection. And in his grace, it might even be that you can bear more fruit. Are you going to accept it and receive it? See, in this race, there are times that this happens. How come? Because we're a family. We're his kids. God doesn't let his kids run amok. He doesn't let them run wild. He has parameters. Amen. And he's a good father. We can trust him completely. If you're not saved, you need to get saved. If you are saved, maybe you just need to say, God, sorry, I didn't want to get mad at you. That's stupid. Or, God, I'm sorry, I've thought about quitting. That's that's silly. God, forgive me. God, I want to endure. I want to be exercised. I I, I want to accept your work in my life. I trust you. I trust you completely. If he is who he said he was, we can trust him. I'm going to ask you to stand. Thank you for listening. Thank you.